And we are currently going through the letter to the Hebrews. If you turn to Hebrews, we're in chapter 9 today, but we will particularly, we're going to start back in chapter 8 just real uh, briefly, just so that we might have the context for what we're doing. And again, I do thank Reverend Clayton for filling the pulpit for two weeks. Did a great job. It's, it's awesome to have somebody in our congregation who is um, capable of, of doing that. And we don't have to worry about, well, I don't know. We don't worry too much about what the pastor says or a, a preacher says up here. Now, you guys have a responsibility to kind of, I don't want you, like, having your computers out and fact-checking me for everything. But you are supposed to look at the word yourself and make sure these things are true. This isn't... Uh, supposed to be the gospel according to John Black. This is a preacher preaching from the Word of God. So as much as this is the Word of God, we are to give ear to it. We are to to um, to bow the knee to the Word of God, to humble ourselves beneath His Word, and and let's uh, first thank Him uh, for bringing us here and for His Word, and that we also would learn um, from this, and that the Word would be the preaching and hearing of the Word would be blessed. So let's pray. Father God, we do thank you that you've gathered us together. You have called us here this morning for this purpose. Nobody's here by accident. And we do thank you for your word is without error. It is perfect. So we thank you that we can believe it all. And we pray that the preaching of the word today would have the anointing, that unction of the Holy Spirit, that the hearers too would be able to, to focus and to have by your spirit their hearts maybe even changed for the first time or renewed, and that you would all make us all more like Christ from what we hear. And so we thank you. We thank you for the word, the word preached and the word read and written and lived, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So sort of it's a very brief introduction what we're talking about today as I was looking through this, and chapter 9 could be broken up into lots and lots and lots of different... Uh, messages, but I wanted to try to keep it in a in a unit because Hebrew sort of coheres as a unit. Um, so I would really advise you at some point just read through Hebrews. It doesn't take that long, and um, and you can read it, read half of it, and then the other half the next day or whatever works for you. But it has particularly to do with a couple of things: our consciences. And that's that it's with knowledge is what it says. And your conscience is the thing that God has given to everyone. That sort of is that little, you know, in Pinocchio, it's the Jiminy Cricket. Gosh, am I showing my age? Surely people, parents, introduce your children to Pinocchio and uh, teach the lessons that are, that are in that, too, because it's very neat. But uh, Jiminy Cricket is the, the voice of conscience. And um, he's telling, you know, Pinocchio, you know, don't do this, don't do this. And, um, but Pinocchio won't listen. And um, goes down, you know, the Lost Boys and ends up in all these places of darkness and ends up in the belly of the fish and then there's a resurrection. There's lots of gospel things in there, so it's rather interesting and the things that you can teach. But that conscience is that voice that God's given everyone. It kind of tells you this is not right. Something's not right about that. And everybody has this. The Bible says that some people through practice of doing wrong, have their consciences seared. And what that searing is, you know, if you have a steak, and Stan loves, his favorite way to make a steak now, is to get a skillet. I'm still not sure I'm on board with you with this. But you take the, you sear it, it's very, very hot, and what it does is it puts that crispy 
I did have breakfast this morning, but I think we're having steaks tonight. It's got this crispy layer on the outside that makes it crunchy, and but on the inside it's tender. And so that, that searing is what happens. And so you have your conscience that can get seared. It can get hard. It can get where you don't, you don't listen to it anymore. But what God does through his word and through the gospel and by his Holy Spirit is he cuts through that into the tender heart of a person. He'll bring a person's heart to life. This is how a sinner comes to to faith, because belief in God is not a logic problem, it's a moral problem. And then once the moral problem is addressed, then we can begin to, the, the logical problems begin to fall away. We're not, we don't have any logical God or any logical gospel, but you're not going to win somebody to Christ through just logical argumentation. They must be convinced of their sin, and the Holy Spirit has to do that. Faith does come by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? You're a sinner. I died for your sins. Whosoever calls the name of the Lord shall be saved. From what? From their sin. From the wrath of God. How are they saved? By God. From what are they saved? From God. We are saved by God from God. Nobody else could save us. If God is your enemy, nobody can do anything. So God must save us. And so what we're seeing here in Hebrews, and the reason again we're in Hebrews is because we wanted to get a better glimpse of Jesus Christ and who he is and have him lifted up before us and, and uh, just go deeper with him here. And it's going to talk about the conscience of the believer. And so this is something we may all struggle with. Even as believers, you have things you've done in the past that you may be ashamed of. And if you don't, it's because you're not you're, you're searing your conscience. You're not looking hard enough. Every single one of us have things that we should rightly be ashamed of. But what do you do with that? And how is your conscience? Because your conscience can really bother you. Your conscience can really drive people to, to great levels of despair. And so one of the things it's talking about is what God has done in Jesus Christ for our consciences. And then the next thing is, is how he's done it and how he's done it through Jesus Christ. So let's just look I'm just going to read a little bit quickly here in Hebrews chapter 8. So follow along, and this is the ESV. If you have a different translation, that's fine. It gives you a little more nuance of what we're reading. Just um, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, this is Jesus Christ, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent. Now that word is tabernacle, and we're going to look at why tabernacle? Why doesn't he compare it now to the temple that's standing? But for some reason that we're going to look at it in a minute, he's going all the way back to the tabernacle or the tent, as it says here. That the Lord set up, the true tent that the Lord set up, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So he gets his image of heaven, and he's supposed to make all the, the ark and the, 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 the furnishings in the tabernacle. All this was supposed to point to things that are in heaven, and most of it being Jesus Christ himself. Verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is 
as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So we have an old covenant being this covenant made with Moses. A lot of times you call it the Mosaic covenant. And now we have the new covenant we're living in with Christ. So these are the two covenants that he's, he's comparing here. And the, remember, the Mosaic Covenant had all the Levitical sacrifices, all these things you had to do, the, the holiness codes. You couldn't dress like this. You couldn't touch these things. You couldn't eat these things. And they were all for the purpose of keeping Israel separated from the world. They were supposed to be the kingdom of God in Canaan, the center of his worship being the tabernacle, and then the nations were eventually going to be drawn to them, but they had to stay separate from the world, and that's what these holiness codes were for. But they failed every time, and indeed it did cause them to even go after other gods. So this is the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant that is being referred to here in verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. This is from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. And with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. This is where we are today. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities." And I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That was last week, well, three weeks ago, and now, chapter 9. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness for a tent or tabernacle was prepared was prepared. The first section, so the tabernacle had two sections, okay? So in, in the middle was that curtain that separated, or well, you're going to read it in a second, the, the holy place from the holy of holies, and that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom at the death of Jesus Christ, and then he also tells us elsewhere that he is that curtain, and he has entered in, I get ahead of myself, let's read this. <laughs> two, for a tabernacle was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, or the holy of holies, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, these are things that were in the Ark of the Covenant, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, those are the two stone tablets of Ten Commandments, and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And I guess I should say, inasmuch as the writer of Hebrews is not going to speak much of them in detail, I should probably spare you from going into too much detail with this too but we preach through numbers we've preached through genesis and we've preached through exodus we've preached through joshua so hopefully if you've been here you understand what this stuff is if you haven't it's all right 
it can still make sense. This mercy seat is called the hilasterion. There's your Greek word. The hilasterion is called the propitiation seat. So when you see that word propitiation in the New Testament, it's talking about um, the atoning sacrifice. So the priest would have a bull that would be sacrificed, and this is on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, one day a year. We're going to see that in a minute. The bull sacrificed, he comes in with the blood, he gets the altar of incense, the censers, he takes the incense in, he puts it on, the, the room is filled, the Holy of Holies is filled with incense, which is the presence of the Spirit and the prayers of the people. And, but he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat, the propitiation seat, the atoning sacrifice seat, so that the blood goes on the covenant. The, cher- the cherubim are looking down upon this seat. Their eyes are covered. And that is called the footstool of God. As he sits on his throne, he's, his feet is on the mercy seat. His feet are on the ark. And he looks down at it. And what does he see? The Ten Commandments, Aaron's stone, Aaron's staff that budded, the jar of manna showing God's provision for his people, and he sees the blood of his son that he sees first before he sees anything else. So that when God deals with us, it's only because of the blood of his son that he's able to see us. It's because of the blood of his son that we have our consciences cleared. It's because of the blood of his son that we're able to come, and this is the most important, into the presence of God. So, verse 6. The preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section. Okay, two sections, priests go in there all the time doing their stuff. There's bread in there, they replace it. There's the candlesticks that are lighting the bread. The bread represents the 12 tribes of Israel. The light is the light of God that shines on the the nations of Israel or giving the church its light. And then, so priests go in there continually doing this work. Verse 7, but into the second, it's the Holy of Holies, the high, only the high priest goes. So it's just one of these guys. And this is all a picture of Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. Remember that. That's what Hebrews has been teaching us. Jesus Christ is our high priest. So this guy that was the high priest, he would take off his robes. He had white linen on underneath it. And he would go in once a year and only him. And, man, he prepared for this thing because you could die if you did this wrong, entering into the holy places of God you have to do everything the way God had said to do it. So he goes in, um, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. So one of the things that I think we might miss if, 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 when looking at the Old Testament sacrifices and things is that these sacrifices were for the unintentional sins of the people. So you couldn't go out and say, you know, I see because um, Ryan puts everything on Facebook that he has two bicycles. One, he's, Mason has one too? Oh, I forget that we're online too. I shouldn't. Let's say there's an unknown person in here who has some valuable things. And I decide I'm going to go steal those things because I want them. So I'm coveting and stealing and everything here. And... But I also had somebody that gave me a, a goat, sorry, goat lovers, and I'm just going to sacrifice the goat and go ahead and get his stuff, and then I'm covered. That's not how that works. Unintentional sins of the people were holiness code violations, um, touching something that you weren't supposed to touch, um, unclean and unclean things, and maybe even some of the moral things that you did unintentionally. But moral things, intentional sins were not covered by these sacrifices. So, what did they do? 
And it's one of the reasons we sing Psalm 51, because David's living under this covenant, and David has done a pretty bad thing. He, he coveted a woman. He, how do you say that? He was not married to her, and yet he acted like he was. And then she was going to have a child, and then he's like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. I'll bring, you know the story, Uriah and David and Bathsheba. He ends up murdering her husband, or having him murdered. So it's his responsibility, his fault, murders her husband. And then Nathan the prophet comes to him with this story about what would you do to somebody who stole somebody's, it's not a bicycle, but it's a, a sheep. And he's like, there's only one he had and he loved it. And this guy had a whole bunch of them and he took that one sheep. What would you do? I'd have him killed. It's like, you're the man. And he realizes he's being accused by God of the sin of killing Uriah the Hittite. Or Uriah, and he um, repents. And what's he going to do? He's a murderer. That dead the man's death. There's no sacrifice for it. And he says that in Psalm 51, verse 16, he says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. So David lays himself out before God and confesses his sin before God and begs and pleads for mercy before God because that's his only hope. And what we learn is the only reason those pleas for mercy, the only reason that begging from the heart and from faith that God was able to forgive David, allow him to continue to live, allow him to, to be king even, a great king after God's own heart was because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to come, that all the blood pointed to, that as they're doing these things, they see, and they look all the way back to the garden, the day you eat, you shall die, and they didn't die, but they recognized the fact that they were naked, they were ashamed, and so they covered themselves with fig leaves, and God, that's not going to do, so there's a sacrificial death that appears in the garden, he kills the animal, and he clothes them with the skins of the animal, it is a picture of Jesus Christ, you cannot provide your own righteousness, you cannot do that, that's the pharisaical way of looking at things, I was listening to Martin Lloyd-Jones sermon this week, and he said, where do the Pharisees live today, where are the Pharisees, in the churches, he's like, there may be some there, but most Pharisees today are outside the church. And what a Pharisee does, the spirit of the Pharisee, is to say, I can keep the Christian ethics. I can do the moral law. But today what the Pharisaical spirit is in the world is, I don't need God at all because I am moral. I don't even believe the Christian morality is right, but I'm moral. I am good, and you must look at it, and you must bow down to it. We call it virtue signaling or things like this, but we have people who believe themselves to be good, right, just, and it has completely no bearings on what God has to say about it. And you have people who believe, they believe, I'm in the pit of sin, I know I'm bad, my conscience tells me this, but I don't need any God to make me better, I can do other things, I can pull myself up, I can make myself good, I can deal with my own sin, I don't need the church, I don't need God, I don't need these things, and the world comes along and says, of course you don't. That's ridiculous. All they're going to do is heap condemnation on you. And there's so many sins today that if you go to a licensed secular psychologist or psychiatrist, they can't even tell you that that's wrong. They can't even counsel you not to do it. They have to counsel you to, to do it. And they can have people fired for saying that you shouldn't do these things. I don't even need to go into details of what they are, but there are things that the secular world today looks at and says, don't you dare call that sin because you're hurting them when you tell them that. You have to affirm people in whatever mire and muck they have found themselves. We don't do that with drug abuse. 
I don't know, I guess they'll start doing things more like that. But we, we do indeed love people who are in sin. We love them enough to tell them about this sin. We love them enough to say there's a forgiveness for sin. We're all sinners. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. But these unintentional sins of the people, there was no sacrifice for that. Can you imagine what that would be like? David praying. I mean, Israel going from Egypt, slave, pulled from slavery, going to the promised land. And what do they have? The tabernacle. Not a temple, the tabernacle. So why does God here, the author of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit, go to, back to the tabernacle as imagery for the church and not use the temple. And it's because the tabernacle was in the wilderness. The tabernacle was for the church of God that was from going from one place and they're on the way, but they're in process and they're in the middle and it calls for faith and it calls for action. It calls for, it, it calls for obedience, trusting God with your obedience. It calls for following him and not even trusting in your obedience and trusting in Christ. But that's the tabernacle and that's where we are. We, we, we are a tabernacle. We're a holy spiritual temple being built together with living stones. It says in verse 8, By this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way to the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. All right, one more Greek word. That Greek word for symbolic is parabole. You know how we translate that sometimes? Parable. There we go. Yeah, parabole. Bale is to throw, like a ball. Parallel is like parallel lines, so it's the throwing along beside something. So it's having a story that is actually the, the lessons being taught here. So this room of the tabernacle is a parable for the present age, where we live now. So according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation, where things are reformed, where the gospel has now come, where Jesus Christ has died and fulfilled these Old Testament things, and now we have the blood of Christ which speaks to us um, of the righteousness of God and of his sacrifice. And we remember when Israel was traveling, Moses and Aaron, when the people would sin terribly against God. They fell down their faces before God, pleading with him not to destroy them, not to destroy the nation. Moses, as the mediator, pleaded to God, don't destroy the, your people, because then all the other nations will look and they'll say, see, their God couldn't do it. He cared about God's vindication, about God's glory. And this is where we are today with the mediator. True worshipers, in the Old Testament, understood how far short they came. They knew that the purpose of the sacrifices was to keep the nation from being destroyed, to allow them to stay in the land, that the laws, the holiness codes, the do not touch, do not eat, and all these things, they were designed to keep Israel separate from the pagan nations. But the conscience of the true individual believer, like David, could only plead with God for forgiveness from intentional sins that they were made aware of. But there was not yet a substitutionary sacrifice for those sins. So they could have forgiveness, but, and they saw the blood, and they were trying to put these things all together. But it didn't come completely clear until Jesus Christ. They knew the wages of sin was death. 
The problem with the Pharisees in Jesus' day was that they believed themselves to be morally pure because they kept the letter of the law. They even believed they could keep the moral law. They believed these things. So they were barring themselves from the mercy of God. When, when you're self-righteous and all the, the, the Beatitudes, like blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, it's like you, if you don't recognize your need for a Savior, if you don't recognize your sin, you, you bar the way of mercy. And God wants to give us this. So they were barring themselves from the mercy of God, not because they were so bad, but because they believed themselves to be so good. And here's the thing, they were pretty good. It wasn't like there are a bunch of hypocrites running around saying they say they are tithing all these things, but they're not. Oh, they were. It's not that they're saying they pray all the time. Oh, they were, and they made sure you knew it, but they did. They were living what the culture was calling and what the Bible seemed to call righteous lives. And Jesus comes and says, man, I'm talking to, well, he didn't say man. He, I don't know if he was quite that easy with his language or not. Thou art, it's thy, thine heart. It's your heart that I'm after. It's your, your conscience can tell you all kinds of wrong things. You have to have it informed by scripture. You think you're doing good, but your righteousness is like filthy rags. And that's offensive to people. I want to be, I want to come to God. I want to clean myself up. I want to, it's like people who don't want to go, gosh, these examples are in the COVID era, era are all a little bit different. Let's just pretend people still go to gyms all the time. But a lot of people won't go to a gym because they want to get in good shape before they go. Like, what? You can't do that. Many, many people want to clean themselves up before they can come to God. I'm not good enough. And they might not say it. But I know many, I had a friend of mine that came to church years ago. Not this church, another church, which was better than this one. Not really. They, um, but he went and he was like, eh, going to be, it's a church is a bunch of judgmental, hypocritical people. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> There's room for one more, you know, those little things you say to people. And But I'm like, you know, he comes to church, and I'm like, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, everybody be nice to him. Please, 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 please be nice to him. So he comes in. Man, everybody was top-notch behavior. It was like, how you doing? Doing good. Nice to see you. Good to have you. Everything. I was just beaming. I was like, man. And so, you know, we walk out later, and I'm just like, so what do you think? I knew it. Everybody was just judgmental and judging me the whole time. I said, man, have I said anything to you? He said, yeah. I said, you carried that in with you. You took that in with you. And, and that's what oftentimes the world does. They stay away from the church. Now, the church can be jerks. We can be jerks, but we have to be careful. The offense is not us, and we can be offensive, and we just have to thank God for mercy and grace for each of us. But... The gospel needs to be the offense. And when the Holy Spirit works on a person, they have to humble themselves. And then when a person has humbled themselves, we have to be right down there in humility with them. If we're not in humility with them, if we appear, this is why dress is kind of a thing. Um, a, a lot of churches, they don't like people to wear suits. I don't want to get too distracted in this. But it's just because it communicates maybe some holier lifestyle. And then some people are like, don't dress up at all because we don't want to communicate a holier lifestyle. And then there's people that walk in that kind of church and are like, these people don't care about the reverence of God. And it's like, Ugh. you know, so what we've decided to do is I'll dress like this. I know this is my uniform now for some reason, but, and it's hot. I don't want to wear a coat right now. I like wearing a tie. But we started saying, hey, I, if the more I dress up, when a person from the street walks in, they see the pastor dressed up, they'll... They're like, eh, it's all right, he's a preacher. Preachers dress up a lot. But when they look around, I kind of made mental note when I looked around before this, uh, there should be people who are dressed 
in different ways. So if somebody's like, you ought to be wearing a suit. Well, there's Jerry. He's got his suit on. You know, there's Ryan's got his, you know, he's close to this little bandana new thing again. And so, you know, and then there are people who, who are not as dressed up. There's levels of dress. And it's like, and that's good because you want people to come in and, and feel comfortable. But that main level of comfort needs to come from a spirit that exudes from God's people, which is we're sinners saved by grace. And we're here to, we love you. We love our enemies. We're trying hard to do better. We, it's only by Jesus Christ anybody comes into his presence. And that's what we want to communicate to people, and that's what we hope comes across. But we all know what we bring into these things, and a little bit of light can blind somebody who's been in the darkness for a long time. And that's, that's not our problem. That's their problem, and we pray for the Holy Spirit to just, I mean, Paul was blinded when he came into the presence of God. And then his eyes were open. But we personally don't want to be the offense. And then we get to verse 11, and we're going to look at where's forgiveness come from. What's, so, yeah, so we got all these sacrifices, and that's good. It remained, allowed Israel to be able to stay in the land. A lot of things were forgiven. But what about these things? What about the bad, terrible things I've done? We're in Haiti. This guy asked me, can somebody who's murdered somebody go to heaven? Can somebody who murdered somebody, yeah, go to heaven? And um, and when I thought about the question, because typically I would answer that question with like, yeah. But then I thought, gosh, that guy might have actually murdered somebody because of the things that, I mean, it's possible. There were people who had murdered who became believers. And um, because of the voodoo and things, a lot of these things w- would happen. Uh, we live in a day where, you know, abortion and things like this happen. You know, so when somebody asks these questions, you had to be careful of these things that, you know, you're, you may actually be dealing with a person that in their gut, they really recognize the fact that, I mean, Jesus said you hate your brother, you're, you're, you're a murderer. Can I be saved? Yes. There's no sin greater than the blood of Christ, and that's what we're going to see. Verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood. The high priest would take the blood of the bull and go in with it put it on there for his own sins and then for the unintentional sins of the people. Jesus goes into the not the earthly copies and shadows. He enters literally into the heavenly places with his own blood. So if Satan or anybody else says, God, you are unjust to save this person or that person, then what God does is say, you see the blood of my son has cleansed everything up here and on earth. The blood of my son is on all those things nailed to the cross that stand against you. The blood of my son has been spilled. So verse 12, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Redemptions you've been purchased from 
the power of Satan. You've been purchased from your sin. You've been purchased from the penalty of the law. You've been purchased from the wrath of God by the blood of Christ. This is what's paid the penalty for your sin. And it's purchased what kind of a salvation? One that you can lose? One that it's here today and gone tomorrow? It is eternal. So that means your sins, past, present, and future sins have all been covered by the blood of Christ. John Owen said, if there's one, if there's anything I can do to lose my salvation, I'll probably do it today. And that even our tears of repentance have to be washed by the blood of Christ. And so the blood of Christ has paid such a penalty for the sins of those who come to him by faith and trust in him and are hidden in Christ. It's an eternal... It, it's an eternal salvation. Not every year you're having to go back for these even the unintentional sins, but an eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons, and this is what was happening in the Old Testament, they made the, the covenants, they sprinkled the hyssop, the blood onto the people, and blood onto the book of the covenant, and they were saying, we'll do these things, and so blood is being sprinkled everywhere. This is a, Old Testament is a bloody book. Because it's only by blood that you can enter into the presence of God. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of a heifer sacrifices for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, it's the only place in the Bible where the Holy Spirit is called the eternal spirit, but it's because it's an eternal salvation. So this spirit is working eternally, always there, always has been, always will be. He, Jesus Christ offered himself without blemish. Sacrifices had to be without blemish, not even a sinful blemish here, not one sin, not one problem. He offered himself to God to purify our consciences from dead works to serve, and that was the same word used for worship, to worship the living God. So this is what the sacrifice of God does. It purifies your conscience. When the Holy Spirit's at work, it doesn't mean you won't remember things. It won't mean sometimes you don't feel guilty for things. It doesn't mean that you're going to have to struggle with sins of the past. But it means when you do, when Satan tempts you to despair, when your flesh tells you you're not good, you've done too many things, who are you to deserve anything? You say, blood of Christ spilled for me. He's given me his spirit. He paid for my sin. He loved me enough to do that. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been paid for by Jesus Christ. And therefore, I can get up. I can worship the living God. I've been redeemed from dead works to worship a living God. And that's just what you have to tell yourself. And you have to walk in that faith. And you have to walk in that knowledge. Because your, your personal righteousness will never be enough unless you become self-righteous. Your personal righteousness will never be enough to convince you that you're good enough to be before God. And if it does convince you you're good enough before God, then you'll be in the part of Job where Job says, Give me an audience with God and I'll defend myself. God appears and Job says, I back off. I didn't know what I was saying. I got carried away. So we depend always and only in the blood of Christ for our salvation. Verse 15. Therefore, he's the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus' blood goes all the way back. So that those who committed these sins under the Mosaic Covenant and even all the way back to the garden. Everybody in the Old Testament is saved the same way everybody in the New Testament is saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Old Testament, you're looking forward to the to types and shadows. You're trusting in God. He's working in your spirit. The Holy Spirit is there. You're having faith in God. You might not see it all, but the things he's revealed, you believe. And in the Old New Testament, we're looking back in the blood of Christ. And Dr. Kelly likes to say, when a sinner comes to Christ, it's as if he's beneath the very cross of Christ with the blood of Christ itself dripping upon your head. Same for the people in the Old Testament. And if you look, we're going to hit Hebrews 11. And how are they saved in the Old Testament? By faith, not by works. So don't get confused that people, it was the mistake to believe you could be saved by works in the Old Testament. So there's this mediator that we have now that redeems them and us from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Verse 16, for where, where a will is involved, it's the same word. It's also the word for covenant, but they're trying to make a point. So we're just going to stick with that for now. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. All right, so somebody says they have a will, and when they die, they're going to leave you all this inheritance. Well, you, they, they have to be dead first. That was the whole problem with the prodigal son. He wanted his stuff before the father died, so that communicated to everybody in his culture, I wish my father was dead, so I can just get his stuff. And his father goes ahead and gives it to him and then rejoices at the return of his son as a picture of the gospel. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without, now listen to the word blood, 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 without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the blood, both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything Thing is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins Leviticus 17 11, very important pivotal verse for the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life and that's why the Jewish people when they kosher food um, they don't eat the blood because the blood is the life, and the blood represents the blood of Jesus Christ coming forward. That's where life comes from. The life is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. They knew that in the Old Testament. We know it in the New Testament times. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Thus, it was necessary... For the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's awesome. That's what the high priest represented. So that, and guess where we are? Wherever Christ is, because we're hidden in him. We're connected to him. We're united to him by faith. We enter into the heavenly places. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For when he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. Memorize that verse. That's what you have to tell people. It's appointed you to die once. That kind of does away with the whole reincarnation thing, too. You die one time. And after that, there's judgment. How will you stand in the judgment? 
naked, completely every pretense drawn away with a holy God staring you down. And every pretense, and you'll just judge against yourself because what we do now is we suppress the knowledge of God and our sin even. But then in heaven you'll have to say, I hate you. I've always hated you. I spit in your presence today. I cannot stand in your presence. You will bow before that God because you will recognize that he is, but you'll pray for the mountains to fall upon you. There's not going to be any of this, please, 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 Jesus, let me in. And he's going to say, I didn't ever know you. It's not going to be that. It's going to be goats and sheep. It's going to be terrible, awful judgment for people who have to stand. Imagine you yourself with all of your, you know your heart. I know my heart. I was scared to death when I was little. They were going to put the, well, I still wouldn't like it. Big, huge screen. Every sin you've ever done. Let's all sit down and watch. And it's like, you know, the only thing you got going for that is everybody else is going to be doing the same thing when it's their turn. But man, the shame. But what he says is, you don't have to do that. You don't have to stand before a holy God and have every sin dealt with as it deserves which is death eternal but you can be hidden in the blood of Christ that was spilled for you he gets it you stand before God you've dead you're standing there why shall I let you into my heaven that guy Jesus Christ and you wouldn't have to say it because you're clothed in white robes washed clean by the blood of Christ you're there you're in it's awesome you're not just innocent, but you've also been credited, imputed with all the righteousness of Christ. So you don't just have a blank slate. You've got like records of deeds of all these awesome things you've done. And it's all the stuff Jesus did credited to you. It's like, man, it's too good to be good, to be true. It's good to be good. But unless a person recognizes their sin, they don't want that. I don't want that. I can clean myself up. I'm not that bad. I don't need God. And it's just the flesh and the world and the spirit of this age speaking to people. But God cuts through that by the Holy Spirit. Faith does come by hearing. I mean, how do we know how many more people can be saved? Have, has everybody been saved that can be saved? And I'm not talking about going to church. I'm like, how, how do you know? Have we done everything we could possibly do to save more people? Have we done everything we could possibly do to reach more people? Have we done everything where we can say, well, I've done it all. What's that? song Ray Ray what's his name hey mama it's me what's he say you ain't tried hard enough to say I can't I, I'm I'm too tired I'm not gonna get anywhere and his mama he's singing this song to his mom he's like he's, he's he's obviously you know been doing some bad things or something he says I've been working too I've been working I'm so tired I've worked so hard she said you ain't you ain't tried hard enough to be tired yet. And he says, I ain't never going to make it. You ain't worked hard enough to say that yet. You know, you, you don't know how much you can accomplish. And now I'm not talking about works righteousness. What I'm talking about is reaching and praying for people, loving your neighbor, trying to, you know, the things in your life that you can cling to Christ for salvation and then to recognize that his promises are real and true and we can trust him with our obedience. And if we really are praying for people to be saved, we need to be, we need to be working that plan. You know, we need to be supporting missionaries, becoming missionaries, sharing the gospel with people, praying for people, doing all these things that we're called to do. But when you stand in a judgment, it's not going to be based on how good did you do. It's not going to be based on how many things did you do. It's not going to be based on anything you did. Because if there's a scale... 
kaboom, guilty. You know, and Dr. Kick preached a sermon about, you know, you know, come, place all your works over on this side. Get, get all your seminary books. Put them over here. Put all the hymns you've ever sung. Come on, put them over here. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Come on, get everything. You gave a bunch of money. You prayed a bunch of prayers. You, you saved a bunch of people. You did a bunch of things. Come on, put it all on here. And you load it and you load it. Nothing, nothing. Then the back door of the church opens. It's already open. Somebody, he, he walks in. He comes in. This one man walks forward up to the scale, and it's Jesus Christ. And he takes his hand, and he squeezes his fist, and one drop of blood appears and slowly begins to drop onto the scales. And as it slowly falls and it hits, bam, completely innocent, completely pure, completely forgiven of all sin, and you're in heaven because the blood of Christ paid for every sin nothing in my hands i bring simply to thy cross i cling and then the other part of good news is you get a lot of rewards for stuff you did in faith it's weird you know six pence none the richer it's a c.s lewis thing he crowns his own works in you so you face judgment in christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies. I hope he makes it. <laughs> you know, there's a, 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 there may have been a string, a rope tied to his leg, and the bells are ringing, so if he died in there, you could pull him out. There's, it's not in the Bible, but it can be inferred. So if God finds what he does acceptable, he comes out and he blesses the people. And the people are like, yeah, yeah. And he lays his hand on the scapegoat and the scapegoat takes their sin out into the wilderness, representing Jesus Christ being taken outside the camp. And that's a picture of Jesus Christ coming with pure robes a second time saying, enter into my rest. I am thy God. You are my people. I have saved you. I have redeemed you. What more can I say to those that I've said than to those whatever that line is in that, in that hymn. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you're coming back. And in the meantime, you've given us your supper, the cup of the new covenant. This cup is your blood, the blood of the covenant. So I pray that you help us cling to the cross, cling to your goodness, cling to the grace, that, that the blood of Christ, that we'd understand more what this means, that we would walk in newness of life and that, that we'd have mercy on people forgive people be gracious to people try to love the unlovely try to like the unlikable that even our enemies we'd figure out a way to love and love enough to pray for their salvation and god that if there's anyone who has things against us that we could be reconciled and we just pray that you would continue to work a work in our lives that our lights would shine brightly and people would be attracted to that that we'd be salt in the world that as we see it going in one direction, Lord, it, it, it's not hopeless. But the church is the one institution that can do anything about it. So we pray that you would give us great faith and that you would work powerfully in your church. Great opportunities in this day. Help us to take advantage of it. By your spirit, give us that grace. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.